This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Call 1-800. What's America doing with plastic soft drink bottles? Recycling them. When I was growing up in the 90s, recycling was everywhere. In commercials. If you're not recycling, you're throwing it all away. TV shows like The Magic School Bus. If you've sorted enough, let's recycle this stuff. The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I want to start a cleanup club. One day a week we can do some recycling. And there's no way we're leaving out Captain Planet. Only you can make less trash. And remember the three R's. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. These were all about what we, individual consumers, could do. It basically came down to put plastics in the blue bin and you're all good. Someone else would take care of it from there. That old soda bottle would be remade into a new bottle or a polyester sweater or insulation. The power is But it was never that simple. While my friends and I were being told to reduce, reuse, and recycle, more plastic was being manufactured than ever before. Globally, companies now produce about 440 million tons of plastics per year. And the International Organization for Standardization, which coordinates standards, says that amount is expected to more than double by 2050. Some scientists even argue that it's created a new ecosystem the plastosphere. But Dr. Marco Castaldi, who studies this issue at the City College of New York, says things could change in the future, thanks to new ways of breaking down strong, stable plastics into their component parts instead of just making new ones out of fossil fuels. I would suspect, you know, in 10, 20 years from now, we're going to be talking about probably 80% of the plastics that have been getting recovered and getting back into the market. And future kinds of plastics could also make this even easier, says Dr. Kate O'Neill at UC Berkeley, but only if the economics work out. Can it scale up? And if it does scale up, is it going to actually solve our plastics problem or is it kind of a greenwash enabling us to continue our plastics addiction? From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Danny Lewis. What if plastic recycling could finally live up to the promise to all us 90s kids? New technology may make it possible. That's after the break. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. When you think of polyurethane, if you do, It's probably something like this. 
Red Devil Clear Polyurethane. You can always count on its durable finish. But wood finisher is just one job in polyurethane's portfolio. Polyurethane is omnipresent. Dr. Stefan Kvist Christensen is a chemical researcher at Aarhus University in Denmark. It's basically everywhere. It's the chair you're sitting on, it's the pillow you're sleeping on, it's the shoe you're walking on. You see it as insulation material in refrigerators, in buildings. It's extensively used in the automotive industry and also in the aviation industry. Polyurethane is a great example of how versatile plastics can be. Plastics are made up of identical molecules called monomers that are bonded together into large molecules called polymers. Those bonds vary in strength, though. Take PET plastics, which are used in water bottles, utensils, and even some clothes. The bonds between their monomers break down when exposed to heat, which is why they're called thermoplastics. That means that you can take those plastics and basically melt them and remold them through mechanical recycling. That's one of the most common processes for recycling some of the most common plastics. But the chemical bonds in polyurethane are so strong and so stable that polyurethane materials don't have a melting point. So the normal uh, recycling modes we have doesn't apply to polyurethanes. Right now, most polyurethane goes to landfills. When it is recycled, it's ground down into flakes and glued together to make things like insulation. But what if it could be recycled using solvents? That's what Dr. Christensen and his team have been working on. So you could basically take a polyurethane material and extend its lifetime by chemically deconstructing these polymers and then making the same plastic or a different plastic from these uh, monomers. There are some ways to do it now. Those reactions often use alcohols, like glycol, to disrupt the bonds between polyurethane monomers. But some reactions require metals, like iridium and manganese, which make the process expensive. And Dr. Christensen says it also makes the end product less useful to manufacturers. If you want to make a mattress into the same mattress again, you cannot use any of the procedures that are out there. You need to find new technological uh, procedures for polyurethane. Dr. Christensen and his team wondered if other alcohols could break down polyurethane more effectively. That would make the process more efficient and cheaper. And if they could get a reaction that produced the original monomers, those could be reused as raw materials, as good as raw plastic. This is what our procedure can do. You can actually deconstruct a mattress, get the monomers back, and then reformulate that into the same mattress again. His lab team tested 11 different alcohols to see if they could break down pieces of polyurethane mattress foam. Some of them worked fine with the metal catalysts, but that would still make it too expensive for wide-scale use. Then, one of Dr. Christensen's colleagues tested out one called tert amyl alcohol. And he said, well, it's working without the, the metal catalyst. It's like, okay, that's, uh, this is a little bit crazy. And he went into the lab and he spent a good two, three, even four weeks in the labs just going through meticulous detail, figuring out there was not just an impurity in our reaction setup. They swapped out equipment, ran the experiment again and again using fresh gear, chemicals, mattress foam, all to make sure there were no trace metals catalyzing the reaction. There was not just like this one reaction coming in from the lab and saying like, woo, it works. It was actually a long process getting to this actually works. And he says it did. They were able to isolate polyurethane monomers in a form where they could be reused and have the same properties as the original material. In the months after publishing the study, Dr. Christensen says they've refined the process further. 
He showed me the results on a video call. So this is actually from one of the components that we deconstructed. It doesn't necessarily look like a mattress. It basically looks like your, uh, your sponge if you have one in, uh, in your bathroom. It looks nice to scrub with. It was yellow, chunky, full of pores, exactly like the sponge in my kitchen sink. And then he held up another piece of foam. This one was whiter, more uniform, kind of like a memory foam pillow. This is a foam made of recycled polyol. That's one of the main building blocks of polyurethane. We haven't done anything about the recipe. We just added the polyol from the polyurethane that we deconstructed instead of the virgin polyol, which would be from fossil fuels. And tert amyl alcohol works with more than just foam mattresses. We used a household kitchen sponges. I drove out to Ikea to try one of their pillows. I tried a shoe. We tried the insulation materials from uh, refrigerators. And we also tried uh, a lot of resins. We also tried it on pipe insulations, uh, material, and, and a wheelbarrow wheel. So we, we actually just, whatever we get our hands on, we try to put into the reactor. Uh, and it actually works in, in most cases. It's not a perfect process. Dr. Christensen says it requires more energy than using the metal catalysts. That means hotter temperatures. But he hopes being able to chemically recycle these plastics without relying on expensive metals will make the process more attractive to manufacturers. Everything comes down to the monomers that you're generating in the other end. What's the price of those as compared to buying them from from fossil fuels, and you, if you cannot beat that price, then you have a problem getting rid of your material. Ah, uh, yes, the price. It's hard to compete with something as dirt cheap as raw plastic. But Dr. Marco Castaldi, the director of the Earth Engineering Center at the City College of New York, thinks that is changing as the technology finally matures. If these companies continue their direction, and the public continues to stay aware and do a good job of separating and so on, and the material recovery facilities continue to, you know, tweak and improve their technologies to pull out the recyclables, the plastics, and so on. Dr. Castaldi, who's done research on behalf of the chemical industry lobby, is optimistic about the future of chemical recycling. He thinks that even though the recycling industry is facing big problems with demand for used plastics now, there's a flip side. Once chemical recycling does become more economical, there will be plenty of plastic stuff ready for companies to buy up. Think of any food wrapper that is being used to protect the food that's there. They're layered, and there's no way a mechanical facility could do anything with that. But you put it through a solvent process. Now you decompose that laminate. You get the plastic resin back, the building blocks of the plastic, and the aluminum, those kind of just precipitate out into a residue stream. And that could actually then be recycled again. Whether it's polyurethane or PET, being able to break down plastics into their raw, reusable materials would be a huge benefit. Dr. Kate O'Neill studies the politics of waste and recycling at UC Berkeley's Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management. The idea of breaking it back down to its original kind of monomers is tremendously appealing as a way to really escape the kind of plastics trap. But she's not convinced that chemical recycling will ever become economically viable. The problem is, I think, for chemically recycled, advanced recycled products, those are probably pretty expensive because virgin plastics right now are super cheap. So 
why not start even earlier? What if future plastics could be designed from the start to be more easily broken down after it goes in the blue bin? More after the break. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Remember that stuff about monomers from earlier? All traditional plastics would just be monomers connected to each other in a controlled fashion, but at the end, you just have the last repeating unit. Dr. Athena Anastasaki is a polymer chemist at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. She says the plastics we use all the time are pretty uniform at the molecular level. The monomers just repeat and repeat and repeat from one end of the molecule to the other. If you can imagine you and me being two different atoms, if I hold your hand really tight... Put her there! This means that the bond is very stable. And so in order to break us apart, you need to be able to break this handshake in a way. Well, that's quite a grip you've got. Basically, conventional recycling damages the plastic polymers and results in lower quality products. But she says chemical recycling is a different story because that process can actually dissolve the bonds between compounds, leaving the individual monomers intact. Instead of tearing the handshake apart, they just release. And those two people can go on to shake other hands. Put her there. Put her there. And this is the really difficult part of the process. That strong, stable handshake is what makes plastic so useful for so many different things. But Dr. Anastasaki says it's also one of the main reasons why most plastics are so hard to recycle, even if others aren't as tough as polyurethane. If we talk about traditional recycling, then, and perhaps that's not very nice to describe, um, we would be getting parts of those individuals. But Dr. Anastasaki says there is a way to make it a lot easier to pull these chemical bonds apart. And that could help make new kinds of plastics that separate more easily into the raw materials we're able to make plastics that have a matching N-group at the end of every single plastic polymer chain. Dr. Anastasaki says her future plastics are held together with a special molecule at the end. And when the polymers are heated to about 120 degrees Celsius, or 248 degrees Fahrenheit, that molecule comes apart. And the rest of the polymer chain follows, like pulling the tab on a zipper. We're able to break this bond at the very end of each polymer chain. And as a result, we're able to retrieve all the individual starting materials one by one, including the chain end as well. That sounds simple. But if all plastics could do this, it would be a big deal. Dr. Anastasaki says her team was able to retrieve up to 92% of these polymers after unzipping them. And she says these plastics could easily replace the ones we have now. Their properties are also going to be identical. So... I don't think there is any concern about the manufacturing of these materials with respect to how to do it. The main concern would really be the cost. That cost is a big question. Because as we heard with polyurethane recycling, virgin plastic is so cheap to make that any added cost feels significant. Unless you convince all the companies to simultaneously work on this, if one company chooses to go after this route, that could be good for them in the long term but they would also have to survive the competition for the first few years. 
because, you know, the other companies would continue making cheaper plastics. Dr. Kate O'Neill, the researcher from UC Berkeley, agrees that even if there are promises about recyclability, for a lot of companies, in the end, it comes down to money. That really disincentivizes the use of secondary plastics. At the same time, she says there's a new urgency to this, because the main way the recycling industry has operated for decades is no longer available. I think China's decision to stop taking plastics for recycling, except, you know, under very stringent conditions, really reshaped the whole advanced recycling debate. And I think that's when you really started seeing a lot more startups emerging and a lot more of these conversations. Over these past five years, um, the title has shifted from chemical recycling to advanced recycling. So you are seeing that that rebranding happening. And I think that that's sort of the way of dealing with these mounting plastics is definitely, this has been one reason for the push. It's also a matter of government policy. 20 states have included chemical recycling as part of their programs to recycle plastic waste, and more are considering legislation. Dr. O'Neill is still concerned that chemical recycling could give cover to companies continuing to produce new plastics at the expense of the environment, but she agrees that tackling the plastic problem will require multiple solutions. Techno-optimism is kind of a big part of our world right now, and I feel like there is this kind of fits in with that pattern. I mean, I think this is a space that's really important to watch and not just for plastics recycling, but also for combating climate change because you've got these big debates over is waste to energy renewable or not? And how do we really assess what renewable is in this context? Basically, you've got to have a lot of different tools operating together to solve this particular problem. Dr. Marco Castaldi says there's another fundamental issue about how plastic is used on a day-to-day basis. Most plastics are made with a lot of additives. And there might be some that still aren't suited to chemical recycling, regardless of how good the process becomes. So a very heterogeneous stream coming in, a very heterogeneous or very inconsistent oil coming out, that's very difficult to use. He says it might get easier with future plastics, but it might still be tricky to make consumer goods easily recyclable, even with future materials and better processes. It's got to be married with the practical of what kind of product are you using it for, right? The plastics that are in cars are just going to go back into a car, but this is very different than if you're trying to preserve food. Still, Dr. Castaldi says it's only a matter of time before chemical recycling becomes widespread. In the last few years, several large companies, including Dow Chemical, Shell, BASF, and ExxonMobil, have invested in means to chemically recycle plastic waste. He thinks that could push it into the mainstream. This is the first time that I've seen companies like that in a real way go after this type of material, the oils that are coming from the plastics and so on, that they will absolutely help push this going forward. Hey, more recycling, gang. It's time to go to work. Okay, listeners, would you be willing to pay extra for plastic products designed to be fully recycled? Why or why not? Let us know. We're at WSJ Podcasts on Twitter. Someday soon, this plastic is going to make, like, a lot of credit cards. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll check out this pile of papers. Man, we just saved a redwood. <laughs> the Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was reported and produced by me, Danny Lewis. Our fact checker is Aparna Nathan. 
Jessica Fenton is our sound designer, and Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Thanks for listening.